0: Could I ask the slide team up there to take the slide back to the meditation that we had at the very beginning of the service? If you could do that for me, I'd appreciate it. We didn't get a chance to look at it before the service. There you go. Thank you. I came upon this quote um, a couple years ago, and it really speaks to this passage in an amazingly profound way. Let me read it for us as we follow along. This is by Mark Buchanan, trapped in the cult of the next thing. I belong to the cult of the next thing. Now just think about that. It's dangerously easy to get enlisted. It happens by default, not by choosing the cult, but by failing to resist it. The cult of the next thing is consumerism, cast in religious terms. It has its own litany of sacred words, more, you deserve it, new, faster, cleaner, brighter. It has its own deep-rooted liturgy. Charge it, instant credit, no down payments, deferred payment, no interest for three months. It has its own preachers and evangelists and prophets and apostles, pitch pitchmen, celebrity sponsors. And it has, of course, its own shrines, chapels and temples, meccas malls, superstores, clubhouses, club warehouses. It has its own sacraments, credit and debit cards, and it has its own ecstatic experience, the spending spree. There are all kinds of curious ironies in this description of the cult of the next thing. Easy, question mark. Easy? I mean, it happens unless you resist it but it's a cult it's hard it's rigorous this cult it requires more of our entire life practically and yet it's heavy it's never enough the irony easy but hard it's profoundly secular consumeristic if you will But profoundly religious, the sacred words, the deep-rooted liturgy, the practice habits, mannerisms, there's a kind of evangelism attached to it. It even has a temple, today it would be the digital superstore. And it's insidious, pernicious, even while at the same time it is venerated and worshipped and idolized. I find these ironies, these tensions, curious, because it's something of a tension in reverse that we're going to discover in our passage today. In other words, I think this quote describes the exact opposite of Christianity, even if it shares all the characteristics of Christianity, There's something of a riddle. Are you getting it? I mean, today we're going to hear our Lord say to us, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Again, in verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, since I am considerate and humble in heart, and you shall find rest. Or your soul, and here it is for my yoke is easy, easy, and my burden is light. Do you believe that? Is that the Christian experience? I mean, seriously. I mean, isn't this the same Lord who said to us for the past three sermons in the book of Matthew that to become a follower of Christ is to put ourselves in harm's way? To be heavy burdened with opposition? Weary with the fight? Isn't it the same Lord that told us that especially those who would take upon themselves to be shepherd leaders... How they are being sent into the world as if sheep without in the midst of wolves. He then gives a description of there's just no limit to the suffering that you're going to experience if you really put flesh in the game, this Christian fight. It's clear, it's going to happen in the courts, he says. It's gonna happen politically, he says. It's gonna happen in a populist manner, he says. It's even gonna happen in your family between father and mother and child and sibling. He concludes, and you will be hated by everyone. Everyone meaning every kind of person imaginable for my name's sake. And he ends all this with, my yoke is easy, and my burden, light. Hmm. Such a powerfully rich passage that yet again, those of us have been around the Christian block often extract it from these chapters that we've been reading. And oh, we love to sing about the yoke that is easy and the burden that is light. We immediately apply it to all of our burdens that we carry and anxieties. And we miss the irony, we miss the profundity, this kind of iso-Jesus that we do. This passage is so rich with meaning, if not also something of a mystery until we are given the eyes of faith to see and the ears of the Spirit-filled heart to hear And perhaps a willingness to slow down again to read this passage. Not to extract it into our immediate comfort. But to really think deeply about what Jesus just did. Again, for those who accept the call to follow after Christ. And especially to be an under-shepherd of Christ. Hard times await you. There's no limit to what you might suffer. And yet, there is a kind of peace, a kind of rest that will transcend all of that and will make sense of the way this passage ends. He will say, blessed is the one who doesn't take offense of the cross that you're called to bear. For you, those you are not scandalized by all of this warning of suffering. You are in for a treat, saith the Lord. Hmm. Hope I got your attention. I, it's got mine. Let's pray for a minute. Thank you Lord for these incredible, really profound and wise riddles given to us with clarity, if Lord, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. So, Lord, we pray for those eyes and ears right now. Help us be open, listening, as you speak to us, our Father, who is in heaven. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So there is a very clear contrast in this passage. Again, remember the context that I just set it up with. I'm not going to go back and repeat it. To follow after Christ is to enter into suffering even. It's to bear a cross. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. That's what we've been hearing. And then the irony. The irony that I hopefully helped you to see a little bit with the cult of the next thing The next thing that would tempt us to be scandalized by Christ. The next thing that would bring about immediate gratification and would appear to be the most easy thing. Because it's it's the thing that's going to feel most natural. It's the thing that's going to be most immediate and most exciting. And it's always moving. It's always transitioning. It's the new thing. The new thing. The new thing. The next thing. And yet, will it truly satisfy. On the one hand it is no wonder that those who really take Christ seriously and contemplate putting some flesh in the game that they would actually have to intentionally do it given what Jesus promised would happen to us. That is to affirm Christianity as just a mere civil religion and by that term I mean you know the kind of religion that can be popularized, the kind of religion that that can be politicized, the kind of religion that can be, and you can just eyes it all over the place, consumerized, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, a kind of religion that is civil, that is broad and democratized. Yeah, we could intentionally co-opt Christianity to the cult of the next thing. And to affirm it, therefore, in that way, while co-opting Christianity to the next thing, would then avoid the tension that Christ sets up for us. Again, those who really live and belong to the cult of the next thing, wherein it is easy to be enlisted, yeah, it's harder and more intentional to reject it. And we can enter into the cult of the next thing without even thinking about it. Careerism, genderism, sexism, travelism, materialism, consumerism, anything really. As long as it's part of the cult of my corner of the universe. It would be much easier and it wouldn't take much thought to just go with the flow and to co opt Christianity to it. That's what Christ meant earlier when he said, Blessed are you who are not scandalized, offended by the kind of Christianity that's true. He talks about that generation, that those who would be scandalized. You remember he talked about those who would be scandalized. He compares them. He says, who can I compare this generation? That is code for those in the last days that are scandalized by Christ. Well, he gives the com- He gives the description of of children who are never satisfied. There, there is a glimpse to our passage. That's how our passage is set up. And the next words were these. Wisdom, he says, true wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. And what he means by this, the deeds that is the results kind of a thing, true wisdom will be vindicated by the ultimate result. That is to say, to those who are scandalized by Christ and the call to follow Him as a suffering servant of God, to those who fail to resist the cult of the next thing, whatever that is, such as to avoid the cross of following Christ, well, the next Sentence tells you. Again, we read, to those, the wisdom of God begins to expose them. And here's how he denounced the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazon! Woe to you, Bethsydia! Regions that Christ had been doing great miracles of redemption. And he says to them something that if you knew the history of of redemption in the Old Testament would give you chills if you had heard it in that context. He says it would be better for you than it was for Tyre and Sidon. He even says if they had seen even half of what you've seen, If they had heard even anything close to the clarity and the fulfillment of what you've heard in the ministry of Jesus Christ, they probably would have repented. But you, those of this generation who've now seen and heard where it's been revealed, the the climax of redemptive time. Oh, he says, it would be better for Tyre and Sidon than it will be for you. And you see, what's amazing about that, he says it this way, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sider than for you. That's how significant, by the way, Jesus Christ is in the revelation of Christ. Those of us who live in these days, we live in the days where God's ultimate revelation, God's ultimate power, where if you were wondering what is God like, we come to a man who could say, I am and the Father are one. To know me is to know the Father. No one could have said that. Not in the immediate sense. Until Jesus Christ, who was both God and man. It would belabor the sermon to just reflect for a moment what we have. That the earlier believers did not. They had foreshadows They had types, oh yes. Christ was present, but in a much more veiled way. It had been unveiled in the coming of Christ according to the scriptures. Like a transfiguration event where we see him for who he is. We are those who have experienced Christ in the history that it produced. Through his birth, his amazing and um, uh, miraculous birth. His tragic and yet gracious death and resurrection and ascension. And so we have this incredible woe that is is warning language. Prophetic warning language. Woe are you, those of this generation, who were scandalized by me, saith the Lord. Who, in their being scandalized, would in fact continue the cults of their idolatry. You know, the next things. And here's what he says about that irony. And it begins to give you a clue. Follow me here. For it's at that time, after he had said, Whoa, 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 that he then turns the narrative. The irony is about to become full circle. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise, quotation marks, the so-called wise, and the understanding, quotation marks, the so-called understanding of this world. And revealed them to those who, well, to paraphrase, are like children. Those who according to the world are the least wise. Those who according to the world are the least discerning. And this is a metaphor. This is not idolizing children or any of that kind of cutesy stuff. He's saying to those he just woed, to those who would be better to have lived inside Sidon than even in their day. He's saying to those that they have not been given the gift. The gift that only Christ can give. And the mystery begins to be revealed. For then he says this, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, circle gracious. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Father chooses to reveal him. There is that, and anyone who, to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So many words he's saying, it's so easy. It's so easy to be wise. Because it's a wisdom that comes from God as a gift. It's a revelation entering into our hearts and souls that we can't strive for. We are at the mercy of God to give it to us. Such wisdom unto salvation from judgment is a wisdom that only God can give. And in the context of Matthew, by the Holy Spirit, we call it in our theological genre, effectual calling. The call of God that's affected by the Spirit into our hearts that we are awakened to our sin and we repent. And we are awakened to the truth of Jesus Christ and we put our faith upon him Yeah, we experience it as a decision, as a choice, but now we know the mystery of that decision and choice. It's a gift. It's given to those who are like children with respect to God, who ask for it, instead of arrogantly puff ourselves up and think that we can fit God into our little box of rationality. It's a gift. And that's when he then says, Come to me. Just come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden. Who are those heavy laden? Who are those who labor? Might it be those who suffer for Christ? This isn't just talking about, you know, my girlfriend just broke up with me stuff. Though that may be true in some sense weaving into the story of redemption. But this is about those who who have flesh in the game. And those who have flesh in the game, who labor and are heavy burdened and laden under the stress and the suffering of Christ, or perhaps those who Initially are awakened to their sin by virtue of the circumstances of it. Where they suffer the curse of that sin. The very curse that's given, to decided, etc. That is already working itself out in our lives today. It's for those though who were brought to the place. This is the key. To put themselves in the mercy of God. Who get the gift. The gift of faith. And it's those people who then find rest. It's those people who the yoke is easy and the burden is light. Now, that's the meta narrative of this passage. That's sort of the big picture. So come to me, he says, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, since I am considerate and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your soul. Listen to the words. The heavy burdened will find rest, peace. That's contrasted with verse 28 there. Come to me all you who are weary weary, and are carrying heavy burdens and I will give you rest. You see how the two, heavy burdened rest. The irony of this. Those of the world who don't bear the burden of repentance, who don't bear the burden of suffering for Christ with skin in the game. They, on the other hand, will never find rest. Theirs will be a life filled with curse, filled with judgment, according to this passage. Thinking they're wise, they became fools, in the words of Paul in Romans 1. We find that, don't we? I mean, just anecdotally. There's been many metaphors or instances through my life where I have seen that. I remember being placed on the debutante list, where I was an escort during. That's an old tradition down south, particularly, and um, and you know it, it puts you into contexts that are you know country club and very very wealthy, etc. And I remember you know growing up a little bit on the other side of the track from that world. And um, thinking that world must, they're, they're, those are all the gifted people. They're all the blessed people. They're all the people who live in the huge, beautiful, glorious Georgian mansions of Buckhead. And I live right there in, the, right there in Buckhead and the other side of Roswell Road though. And um, it was really eye opening And I don't mean this judgmentally because I've met some beautiful people, wonderful people. The father of the girl I dated you know, during that time was just an amazing man. and So this isn't meant to be poo-poo or anything, but just, it was just very interesting. You know. And it was interesting when after desegregation hit Atlanta, I was moved to a private school, a very nice private school up a little north of Atlanta, it was very interesting. I'm saying this, I don't want you to read into this. I'm not, I mean, they're good, you know, God God transcends all class. But what was interesting for me is just a metaphor maybe, is to discover that life is really heavy. Whether you have money or prestige or privilege or not. I encountered through that season of life more brokenness than maybe I've ever encountered in my life. It was interesting, that's all. And I'm, I'm saying it as a simple thing because have you noticed it? It doesn't have to be in that class context. It can be in any kind of context. But have you just noticed that if you look at the life over the long term, not the immediate weekend away, getaway, the next thing immediate, but when you look at life where, and it doesn't mean that you, you know, this isn't aimed at rich or poor or anything. It happens across, again, all the stereotypes. Just wherever that might have up to you, have you just noticed that there is a kind of outward, immediate gratifying happiness, but when you get into a little deeper, you find out there's a lot of skeletons, and a lot of hurt, and a lot of pain. What I'm trying to say here is that the Lord here is pointing out what is To those who have not been given the eyes to see and ears to hear. Might be, they might be blinded to it. That this world that seems so easy. The world that you don't even have to be intentional about it. You just go with the flow. The world that would be scandalized by the kind of teaching that Jesus has been giving here. Which is to take up your cross. And follow after me. Well. Well. That world isn't quite so blessed as we think, and eventually it becomes full blown. Because, in the words of Christ in our passage, those that maybe we even love and really love, who practice this kind of civil religion, if at best, they're in for a horrible, horrible awakening when it's too late. You see, that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that though there may be a heavy burden in this this call to follow after Christ, they will actually experience the blessing of God and not the curse. My yoke, he says, is coupled here in verse 29 with those who learn from Christ. That is, who believe in Christ, who obey Christ. This word in the Septuagint is taken from a word in the Hebrew that literally means it can be translated to obey. But to obey is really the same word for to believe. To believe in a manner that we put our life into it, kind of a word. Take my yoke upon you and learn. That is, to be wise according to God, to learn from God, to receive from God, to live for God. My yoke and my burden, he then says, will actually, in the irony of things, turn out to be light. My yoke is easy and my burden light. Let me illustrate this. This is important because you really still don't quite get it unless you understand the context for what Christ is saying in redemptive history. This language of yoke is a very common word in usage. This imagery of being on a yoke. And everyone knows what a yoke is. You, know, you put a collar on a horse or an ox or whatever, and that collar becomes the basis for which you are put, you know, you know uh, towing something behind you. That yoke. And it's interesting how almost always it's a bad thing. For instance, the kind of yokes that the prophets decried was ironically the things that we could here describe as the next thing. If you look at Sidon, for instance, and Tyre, the yoke was the way they politicized Israel. So as to put their confidence in the politics of Babylon. The prophets came and said, you are politicizing God. You are making a king out of a wrong king. You are trusting in the wrong thing, this Babylon, who everyone was adoring. This great, mighty kingdom of the day. The superpower of the day. But they were turning their trust and their wisdom away from God and putting their trust and wisdom on Babylon. And that's the occasion, or it would be Syria for the next generation. Assyria became the next big superpower. Before those two, it was Egypt. Israel had a bad habit of politicizing Israel, which is to say that they would co-opt other nations to be truly what they put their faith in, Even if in their civil religion, they would name Yahweh as their professed faith. And so Isaiah, do not be afraid of the Assyrians. On that day, his burden will be removed from your shoulders. His yoke will be destroyed from your neck. You just got to read that and chuckle. Because these people before that had just rushed to Assyria. It was insidious, it was was rampant to put their hope in Syria. As the prophet said, no, 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 they promised peace, but they're not going to give you peace. And then they didn't give him peace. They suffered the curse of oppression. And then they cry out to God, and they say, oh, God save us. And the prophets here speak into that, like I just read. Isaiah 14, I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains trample them under feet. His yoke shall be removed from them and his burden from their shoulders. You see how this yoke becomes a burden? Here applied, of course, to the political context. In Jesus's day, it would have been Rome where he says against Rome, my kingdom is not of this world. As they were tempted to co-opt Judaism in his day to Rome. With all the little agreements that Rome had made with even the priest of Israel. Sometimes this word yoke is used to describe what we might describe today as moralism. That is the law. And this moralism would have been not anything wrong with the law itself... It was, in effect, I'll say it in now our New Testament way of saying it, it would have been law without gospel. (laughs) You see, because all through the covenant, there were provisions made for grace and mercy, provisions that had been lost upon Israel and their self-righteousness. You think of the temple and the sacrificial system. You think of the covenant Contract that God gave to Moses even where there was always a continuation of this idea of, of a covenant executor who would be God himself that would execute the covenant and the terms of that covenant so that the people could therefore by being substituted by this covenant executor have access to all the blessings not the curses of the law. But when the people forgot that and they became proud and self-righteous in their moralism, they would bring, it was described in Jeremiah 2, as a yoke, a heavy burden. Now, those are just two ways illustrated in the redemptive history where this idea of a yoke, which would have been immediately associated with this heavy burden, oppression, slavery, curse and Jesus here enters the irony and he says if you won't be scandalized by me if you won't play this cult of the next thing whatever the next political regime is whatever the next civil morality religion is whatever these next is is whatever I came to make a sentence If we would just listen and learn, he says, then I will set you free from all the curses of these cultic pseudo religions bring upon you. That's what he's saying here. Did you get all that? That's it. He says in Jeremiah, you have not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God while he led you. He says, and this is a rhetorical question. He's speaking of that morality. Have you not brought this upon yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God while he led you in the way? He says, your wickedness will punish you. Did you hear that? The irony is the very things that we are so easily, almost without even trying to believe in are the very things that will punish you for it. That's what Jeremiah was saying. Your wickedness that you brought upon yourself when you played after these next thing idols and your apostasies, they will convict you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord. You hear that? bitter. I wonder, have we forgotten that? You know, it's interesting how many people will say, well, what really prevents you from becoming a Christian? And the more honest people will say, honestly, I'm afraid I'm just not going to have much, much fun. I'm just afraid that I won't be happy. So maybe later in their head, I'll take it out as an insurance policy when I start thinking I might could die. But until then, I'm going to have it both ways. I'm going to profess a non-flesh-in-the-game, pseudo-ethical kind of commitment to Jesus Christ. But I'm going to still make sure i got a foot in the world and... I'm going to avoid, you know, suffering. I'm going to avoid being a little odd. I'm going to avoid not just playing along with the games or the rules of the game. And I'm going to get ahead in this life. I'm going to trust the next things of this life, in other words. You hear that a lot, don't you? Don't you think? Don't we hear that? It's amazing how all this was two thousands of years ago saying this stuff that we're reading here. He says the fear of God is not in you. That means, the idea Jeremiah means by that, the fear of God means that we've we've discerned that God is the giver of all good things and he's the one who can take good things away. In other words, he's the one, God is the one that you want to be on the good side of because he holds the power of your life and it's prosperity in his hands. There's almost a weird kind of, Self-motivation to make God our yoke. And that's what Jeremiah says. For long ago you broke your yoke and burst your bonds and you said, I will not serve. That is almost for certain what Jesus is reflecting upon in this passage. How these people who were once yoked to God, had forsaken their God to be yoked to these political regimes or to these self-righteous bad religion regimes of moralism, works righteousness. And when they did that, they severed their yoke with God, the yoke that would learn and serve God. And the irony is, is that to serve God, while it might put you in harm's way relative to this world and to your popularity, to your wealth even, to your comforts maybe, there will be a kind of rest, a kind of happiness That is greater than all of the pseudo short-lived happinesses that you could possibly get from the next thing. And the Psalms talk about it. The prophets talk about it over and over. Jeremiah would continue to say in that passage I talked about, Thus says the Lord, stand at the crossroads. You've got a decision. Look and ask for the ancient paths. Go back to the faith of our fathers and mothers, he's saying. Where the good way lies and walk in it and find rest. There it is for your souls. My yoke is easy. Not because it's easy. It's easy because God gives it to us. And the life that he gives will be blessed. Even if in the world it will be hard. Okay. You're kind of mad at me right now. Oh, hold it, man. I mean, we're back to where we've got. No, not quite. I mean, think about how we see this. Whether it's about our future, heaven and hell, certainly it's true there. But even this kind of peace and rest and contentment that's just not of this world. Timothy says it this way. There's a great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For if we've had food and clothing, we will be content with these. You see, Jesus has the capacity to fill your soul with joy and happiness. And it's a kind of joy and happiness that just is not circumstantial. We can't believe that's true. We really can be happy without a big house. We don't believe it though. We really can be happy without financial security, but we don't believe it, though. We really can be happy without the world and its politics going on in my direction, but we don't believe that. We find all kinds of works righteousness to believe in. Found in all of our various identities that we work. Instead of trusting in our identity that is in Christ. Regarding the rest or the contentment, we are led to, I think, three responses. One is adoration and praise, as it ought to be. We're not going to be praising our own works and our own righteousness and our own, and righteousness comes in many forms, our, our you know, work or whatever we do that we put our trust in. We're going to see Christ's authority revealed, and the world will see it. They'll go, wow, those are the happiest people I've ever met, and yet they seem to be the most distressed. That was one of the uniform statements about the martyrs in the early is Just how joyful they were. How happy they were. Those who were most distressed, according to the world. Let me just kind of close with a brief discussion on this a little bit. What does the soul's rest really look like? How do we get it, according to this passage? Satan would like nothing more than to convince us that contentment is found in being selfish. That's basically the cult of the next thing. Satan will tell us over and over, you've got to be selfish if you're going to be happy. In so many words. Look after yourself. Follow your desires. You find a worldly person, you will find a discontent person though. Pretty much guaranteed. Enough is never enough. Find a selfish person, you will find a discontent person. Find a person whose yoke is the desire of their flesh, and you will find a person who is striving and working under the heavy burden of their own cult of the next thing. Whatever that cult is, they will work themselves to the bone to please it. Only to be oppressed by the very thing that they're working for. It's Egypt all over again. that trust in Egypt... Egypt that would come back. Well, the reason you're unhappy is you're not making enough bricks. Make more. Make more with less straw. Make more. Where did it get him? We find a person who submits to Christ and who obeys his commands, whose values are after his glory, and whose home is in the mansions prepared for them in heaven. And you will find a person whose yoke is easy. That is to say, they've got happiness and it's a gift. It happens regardless of the circumstances. That's an easy happiness. Whose soul is content, who's found peace within their soul, and that peace emanates into their relationships and their family, into their world. Even if the outer person, according to Paul, is wasting away under the stress and the burden of suffering the cross of Christ, their inner person is being renewed day by day, he says. Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection. Hear what he just said? The way to the resurrection is through the cross. And the resurrection is what? A new life. An abundant life. And he's not just talking about in the world to come. He's talking about even now and Phases and stages. And so he says later in that same book of Ephesians, of Philippians. So therefore I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But that is a blessed and abundant life that man just found. He doesn't go to bed worrying about his, his bank account. He doesn't go to bed worrying about his degree. He doesn't go to bed worrying about the political situation in America. He doesn't go to bed worrying at night about, and you can just fill it in. This is a guy where the peace and the rest and the joy of the soul is easy. It's easy. Because it's not conditioned on anything. Except the gift of God for those who would listen. I'm going to give you a couple of truisms to leave you. I'm not going to fully explain them. I'm going to let you and your own prayer life today think about them. And let's just see what God does with them. Truism number one. A Christian comes to contentment and joy, not so much by way of additions, next thing, but by way of subtractions. Let me say it again. A Christian, I mean a for real one, comes to contentment and joy, not so much by way of addition, As by way of subtraction. Truism number one. Truism number two. A Christian comes to contentment. Not so much by getting rid of the burden that is on him. But as by adding yet another burden to himself. Let me say it again. A Christian comes to contentment. Not so much by getting rid of the burden that is upon him, but as by adding another burden to himself. Now you'll have to interpret words from our text as you reflect on this. What kind of burden is he talking about? What kind of joy is he talking about? What kind of contentment is he talking about? By the way, these are paraphrases of Jeremiah Burroughs in his classic uh, on contentment. I can truly say about this meal, come you who are heavy laden. Whether it's you're burdened under the cult of the next thing, or even those who are under the weight of suffering the cross of Christ, come. He offers you abundant life and a food that transcends all food by His Spirit. Amen.